we're all really good at slamming doors. You know, we're all really good at saying, you know, but I mean, I think once people, I think being accountable to yourself, first and foremost, being accountable to yourself, it's a hard thing to do, but when you can get to that point, it, it just changes everything. Self-leadership can be lonely. It's hard to do the thing no one else wants to do, that no one else is willing to do. But you are not alone. There are others dancing through the fight and laughing as they lead. Let's find them, swap stories, and live through this together. Welcome to How I Live Through This. I'm your host, Ann Roach, and I'm really glad you're here. Today, I'm delighted to be talking with Sean Murphy. Sean was a police dispatcher with the Boston Police Department for almost 17 years. He's a founding member and peer supporter of the Metro Boston 911 peer support team. Recently, Sean's undergone a career change. Wanting to advocate for workers' rights, he's now a field representative and organizer for Service Employees International Union, Local 888. On a personal level, he's recently embarked on a two-year weight loss journey and lost 271 pounds. He's become an avid hiker now and is in the maintenance phase of his health journey. Welcome, Sean. I'm really glad you're here. Thanks, Sam, for having me. This is great. I'm, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> you're the best. Thank you. I asked you on because of our previous conversations around changing the culture of law enforcement and your role in bringing peer support into the BPD. And I know that you're outside of that now, although still actively involved in the peer support. Can you tell me a little bit more about what peer support means and what led you to focus on that? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of, I guess I'll start with the, the second part of the question first. What, what kind of led me into it is um, just realizing there was such a need for it. I, uh, in general, I think that um, mental health, we were just talking before, uh, before you hit the record button. And uh, I think mental health is just, it, there's such a stigma, especially in the law enforcement community about mental health. I think in general, in, in our society, there's a huge stigma. I think it's and the biggest and best way to combat that is to just continually fight the stigma, to be able to speak out about it, to be able to express yourself, to be able to know that it's all right for you not to feel okay. In fact, that's kind of normal. And once you realize that, it it there's so much you can learn um, through peer support that that better equips you with day to day. You know, just in general, I don't feel like. Going through the process of learning about peer support and taking the classes and taking the courses, I I came away from it realizing that I don't think there is a person walking on this planet right now that couldn't benefit from some level of peer support or you know from mental health services, and and for us peer support was was the uh, ideal vessel I guess for that because a former coworker and friend roommate everything anthony landry he's the coordinator of of the unit and for us we felt the need that it had to be purely peer driven because trust and trying to maintain confidentiality they're they're key components when you're you know in the um stage of it where you're 
you know, learning about it or trying to essentially decide if you want to uh, utilize it. And uh, basically, you know, what we do is facilitate help for, you know, our, you know, coworkers, our, you know, comrades in arms, you know, and it's just, uh, I felt that personally speaking, one of the most effective methods is it's same with training, same with learning how to do your job was experiencing it from the eyes and ears and voices of those who have maybe come before you, those that you sit with, those that experience the same things, things just ring true. You know, when you're hearing it from somebody that you've sat next to and seen go through, you know, the things that you've gone through and can relate to, you know, what you're talking about. Dispatching is sort of a, we're sort of in a weird spot because we're kind of like that cross between we're civilians, you know, you know, most, most of the industry at this point is civilian, but we see. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Time out. What does that mean? Most of the industry at this point is civilian. What does civilian mean in terms of, can you just explain what that is? Oh, sure. So, I mean, uh, you know, traditionally with dispatching a lot of, uh, you know, back, I don't know how far going back. I think uh, 911 started in the 60s, if I'm not mistaken. Initially, a lot of um, dispatching would be done by uh, sworn police officers. As the industry sort of evolved, civilians started having more of a, a, a bigger roles. And now to the point where a lot of, um, there's a lot of consolidation that go, that's, is going on in the industry now where it would be things would be run by individual police departments on a local level. Um, so it would be up to them to figure out how they were going to proceed with whether it was going to be police, whether it was going to be civilian, hmm. making up the rules, all that stuff. So everything was different no matter where you went. There's a push now federally, uh, nationwide to sort of standardize things. I think 9 11 o- opened up a lot of eyes in law enforcement to the fact that they need a lot more interoperability. Yeah. So there was a there's a push. So as a result, I think of that push. What we've seen is that call centers have consolidated. They've become civilian run. Also, essentially, the and the idea behind that is by peers. So you would have you would create a career ladder for for your civilian workforce where they could you know promote up into roles of management and actually run units, you know, not to get off on a sidetrack, but one of the biggest issues that I faced in, in, in my particular department was a lack of um, management that was trained specifically in what we do or has done it. So, you know, it, it creates a lot of communication issues on the management level, but you're seeing a shift. I, I, you know, we're seeing this shift of, you know, now there's a lot of um, directors of, of 911 call centers that are, you know, coming from the ranks. There's a couple of uh, groups, APCO being one, and I don't know what the letters stand for, and then NINA. They're two, two of the major sort of uh, nationwide governing organizations, and they come up with a lot of the standardization and the testing and stuff like that. And they've brought about programs for civilians to you know get certificates and get certifications and and have more of a standardized sort of managerial system for dispatching in particular yeah Yeah. right dispatching and call taking too and and 
a lot of a lot of the smaller places when you say dispatcher it's a catch-all you do everything you take the call you know you dispatch to fire you dispatch to medical in my situation and in a lot of like major urban uh environments it tends to be they'll be separate so you'll have like a 911 call taker that their their job is to take the call and a lot of it is just based on you know call volume and the size of the department you know uh like in boston for instance it's essentially like uh, uh divvied up by district so you'll mm -hmm. have a lot of um it's essentially like you know seven or eight different police areas and they're all under one umbrella so you know you have a system where it's just a bunch of dispatchers that do the dispatching call takers that do the call taking interesting yeah so it's it's different in different places and it's still not um you know there's been a push to standardize but it's we're still not there yet i mean it's still a work in progress i guess I kind of lost where we yeah, were. Yeah, I'm there. so sorry. I, I was, <laughs> you know, I, I I'm so sorry that I interrupted you, but I no, it's no, no. so it's so fascinating from somebody who's not in law enforcement. It's such a what I'm discovering is it's not only such a behemoth. I mean, it's so there's it's so big and so different in different states and different districts and different, but also it's a it's a business it's such a business um mm -hmm. and so I, I appreciate you breaking it down it's as someone again as someone who's not in law enforcement it's odd to hear the word civilian because that's such a military phrase yeah <laughs> um you know and so <laughs> i i i chafe against that a little bit but i also i'm just so curious it is clear that there from what you're saying that there is a a distinction made between dispatch and call centers and the uh, the law enforcement or the or the departments themselves it, it you use the word it chafes it chafes us <laughs> too to be quite honest so i mean i know i mentioned in uh, some previous conversations we had there's a lot of uh there's just a lot of misunderstanding i think because you know, while we don't know specifically the job of a police officer, we're very in tune with what they do. Sure. We have to be. I mean, it's intrinsic with our job in a lot of ways. But there's a lot of um, kind of old school mentality that that applies. Um, and this relates directly to peer support where, you know, the, the common refrain we used to hear and we still hear is, oh, you know, if there's a critical incident or if something takes place, you know, and this was a lot of the reasons why uh, Tony and myself and other dispatchers and call takers decided to step up and make this a reality was whenever something happened, I mean, I've heard it on said on the floor after critical incidents, you know, if a, one supervisor asked another, did anyone check in on the dispatcher and literally heard the reply be, oh, they're just the dispatcher, they're fine. They weren't there, you know, but now studies have come out we're realizing that not only are we affected by what happens we're affected vicarious trauma is a real thing you know a lot of what they say about how these critical incidents affect officers in the field you know you'll have an officer that may go out and have one or two intense calls or more i mean you know there are days that they're going from intense call to intense call right. but generally speaking you know one a shift you know, to a shift maybe in a busy urban environment on a weekend in the summer. Well, you could be on dispatch in a regular eight hour shift, or if you're mandated to a 16 hour shift and you're going through 
10, 15, 20 intense calls. We have foot chases, gun calls, I mean, anything. And every time you have one of those calls, whether you're in the middle of it in the, in the street or whether you're experiencing it through, you know, the ears of a dispatcher uh, and listening to the voices on the other end, you get that fight or flight syndrome and your body is reacting to that. It's pumping adrenaline into you. It's pumping cortisol into you. And I mean, the studies are coming out now that, you know, if you don't, if you don't treat that effectively, with some sort of mental health routine or you know some sort of routine to to fix that those cortisol levels just continue to build and over time right. they cause adverse that that's why you see all these there's a lot of uh data that's starting to come out about uh physical health of dispatchers and how it's you know you know over time you know because you're not treating those things right. properly because you're just consistently dealing with them and it's over and over again repetitive um if you don't take a a beat to you know work on that uh in whatever manner it builds up yeah it causes problems down the road it's the same with officers which is you know i mean there's you know the the suicide rate among law enforcement officers is like through the roof and a lot of it has to do with those mental health issues just not being treated right um and if we simply made that i don't want to say mandatory but if we made it the norm i guess would be the best way to put it these things could be easily avoided but a lot of times we realize it when it's too late so that was a lot of the push for us we saw the need mainly because i think we saw it in each other's eyes faces we were all having problems you know i mean i realized that i was not dealing with things effectively i was on a bad track with a lot of things in my life not taking care of things because you tend to just you know i this i'm gonna date myself and i'm gonna (laughs) i'm gonna put myself out there with my music choice but (laughs) there's a song by a a hair metal band called skid row and uh it's 18 in life and there's a line in it where he says i kept my motor running but i never kept it clean and i always think about that because i went through that for about a solid 10 years of my career and where i was burnt out i was not paying attention to the warning signs in fact i was neglecting them i was i was using bad habits to cope right because i didn't know what to do and going through the peer support process on my own realizing that i needed to and then you know saying okay you know what it's time for me to put my money where my mouth is and uh, you know if i'm going to start preaching this message to people i need to not only understand what i'm you know trying to sell you know but i need to uh i need i i need i i'm recognizing now that i need to get this help and i learned so much about just you know the way our a lot of it is, has to do with education and you know through the programs that we went through we learned a lot about why you think the way you do why your mind works the way it does and then you start to realize oh i don't i'm not you know crazy or i don't have some issue that everyone else doesn't deal with this is how our brains work and that to me was an epiphany and it seems like 
kind of common sense in a way, but when your blinders are on and you're in the middle of, we say it all the time, we talk about being in the trench and you just get these blinders and you can only see one way and it's straightforward and you're not thinking about, you know, taking care of those things, you know, yeah. so. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot, but. Well, and, and you're in a, you're in an organization, in a business, in a industry that, that doesn't lead with, um, uh, what's the right, doesn't, I, I well, I, I'm struggling to find, find the word. <laughs> doesn't lead i guess would be kind of so it when it comes to that it just doesn't put the priority on mental health i i have this story i i may have mentioned it to you before but this was what really opened my eyes i was taking some of these classes and um when i was you know getting my certifications to be part of the peer support team um and we had a class that was uh it was more geared towards uh, sworn law enforcement officers. And we were in a classroom full of sergeants, chiefs, patrolmen from all over the state of Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, uh, this one officer, he, uh, he got up and he, and he spoke uh, very eloquently about his, his dealing with, uh, with issues. And later on during the day, I got angry. I was angry because we were talking about these issues and I'm, I'm still angry about it because I, I hold, you know, there's a part of me that holds a lot of these people in positions of power and contempt for them not caring. And when something I think should be inherently cared for and it's not, mm-hmm. um, it's overlooked. And so I made the point out loud that, you know, our, our bosses, you know, our chiefs, our, you know, commissioners, our, you know, deputies, our superintendents, they should be putting more of a focus on the mental health issues. And the same person that just had an hour ago got up, given this impassioned talk about his struggles and his survival, said, made a point in the class that, well, you know, that's not their responsibility. It's up to the individual. Mm. And I and I stopped for a second and I'm like, no, that's where you're wrong, you know? And I, I just said, how much money do they spend? You know, this person was a, you know, they like to use the term operator. He was a SWAT person. He was like highly trained hostage negotiations, all these tactical employments and, you know, was was decorated and all intents and purposes was a uh, from what I heard was uh, you know a top cop and uh, I just said how much money did they put into all that for you personally because you're an asset to the community and it's important for you to be highly trained and highly skilled at the jobs that you're doing because there's such crit- critical of critical importance you know there's such highly needed skilled positions don't you think that they should put as much effort and expenditure into making sure that everything is good going on up in your head you know and i just to me it just seems so 
it, it was like it's like in your face how do you not understand that that's just that should be as important or more important yeah. that keeps you in the game but that was after i'd already kind of gone through some of it um, yeah. myself and realized oh you know i mean i can actually do a few small things uh, and make them a part of my daily system and i can stay sharp and stay on top of this and realize that it's okay to not feel good all the time and acknowledge it and, and work it out you know instead of you know going to a bad habit or a bad system that's not going to support that so i to me it's just and that was just indicative of it and this is a person who had gone through you know all these things and and seen their benefit and to me i'm like how can you not understand this you know so i don't yeah. know it's talking the talk but not walking the walk and i and I, I can understand why. I mean, I, I think it's, and I, I, I'm, I'm not the person to speak to this, but from what I'm hearing, this is a big ship to turn around. You know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's so ingrained. It's so part of, it's been such a part of the culture of law enforcement for so long that that kind of hardened, warrior stance and externally and that you know what you get on the outside is what must be on the inside absolutely absolutely yeah and i it's that's a hard that's a hard place that we're in because we see you know we have the distinct uh sight of seeing things from the you know from the eyes of those that are actually going into these calls yeah. um and that and this is a <laughs> this is a very hot button issue on all sides of the argument too about you know like a lot of talk about um you know when they talk about the defund the police movement and all yeah. those things and you know what's you know should we be sending officers into all these things i mean my you know not to get off on it but you brought it up so i mean I guess my take is that um, I I often look at, and this to me is overall, not as much maybe a law enforcement culture issue as a societal issue, because I think us as society definitely have put the law enforcement community in a position where they're essentially societal ales, trash, trash men. So they have to respond to whatever we deem as a society, we're not going to issue. Yeah. We're not going to, I mean, we're not going to deal with. So it's like, you know, it's become a situation where they've been forced into a lot of calls that they necessarily shouldn't have to be going to. Yeah. And a lot of that comes back to, this is where I talk about it being so cyclical, cyclical to me. And I end up getting in these spins where I'm like, this is about mental health. All of these issues are about mental health. A lot of it, I do go back to our, you know, our healthcare industry and not to, this isn't a, a, a dig at those that are providing care, but this is a dig at like how our insurance and how our system is run. That's why mental health isn't a priority and these things go untreated in the general public and then other problems occur as a result and then law enforcement gets involved and then it becomes a law enforcement issue and then you have people that are 
in and out of the court system, which is not functioning properly. And, and it just, it becomes this dirty snowball that's just rolling down a hill all because we don't put enough priority on mental health and healthcare in this country. And, and it's sad because anybody that's a first responder and, I, and, and I am going to include dispatchers in that because I am one of them or I was one of them and we, sh we are the first voice and I don't care what, and this is my law enforcement brothers and sisters. Most of them will be the ones that get it, get it. And there's a lot that don't want to hear this, but we're first responders. Yeah. So I'm going to say that. And, uh, you know, but I mean, fire, I mean, EMS, uh, I mean, police, the stuff that they end up having to deal with. I mean, it's just, you know, it, there's, if, if we had a true handle on healthcare in our country, and if, you know, people could get around that idea that, I, I don't know, I'm now I'm getting political, but healthcare should be a right for every American. And I include, I include mental health care in that. And if we start there, a lot of these problems will fix themselves. Yeah, I, I truly believe that. And I, I mean, you know, you see it time and time again, we go to the same places over and over again. And the system for, you know, all the help that it may give is misdirected on times and or there's roadblocks because of health care and everything like that. So these people are falling through the cracks. And if we simply could address the mental health needs and make them a priority and make them a right, as opposed to, you know, something that has a monetary value on it, I think we'd be in a much better place. Yeah. That's just my opinion. I, th I think they shuffle too much onto law enforcement. Law enforcement has been forced to be the front line. Law enforcement and, 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 and um, emergency medical services, fire department included, mm -hmm. fire services, they've been forced into becoming the front line of, of the opioid epidemic, of these mental health issues being forced out into the street. And right. that's because of our healthcare system and yeah. the way that it, it you know, it assigns monetary value to these things. I really appreciate you bringing it back to the healthcare, and and that leads me to ask you: Where have you seen this work, this peer support work, making a change, making a difference? Well, our so in our in our team, our partners in this, and they've been absolutely unbelievably amazing and they've been nothing but supportive of us um there's a, a so i'm going to give them a plug there's a uh, a facility that's for uh for emergency responders and the military law enforcement fire service emergency medical service uh and now dispatchers called onsite academy and they're uh based out of western Ma or central mass um they're up in westminster and they have a facility there and it's you know, specifically to uh, assist all of those people with critical incident debriefs with certain things like that. So I've seen the um, amount, I mean, even before we got involved, um, they've been helping various law enforcement fire services all around the country in incredible ways. And, and they've prolonged careers. They've gotten people back up 
when they've suffered personal or you know work related you know issues anything they're amazing people and they care about the work they do and and i i mean i've seen it i've seen it firsthand and it's incredible to see i've had it personally assist me i one of the things that uh occurred when i started getting involved and realizing that there was a need for this my work uh, place was uh you know one of the things that happened was i realized you know i need i need to talk to somebody about some of the issues that i'm having i had gone through uh the death of my father and uh, he was diagnosed with cancer all the while i was working in the call center uh, on the graveyard shift and basically for a period of a few years when he was you know going through the process of you know dealing with a, a stage four cancer diagnosis i was his primary caretaker i had a lot going on and after his death i mean he was my best friend you know i mean he was my guy and uh it hit me like a ton of bricks and i you know i think that was the breaking point for me i realized after that that i say this all the time when i'm talking to other people about peer support i didn't realize i needed it right up until the moment i realized i did yeah. and you know i think just saying i need to i need to go up you know and and i i went through the program and they just put everything into a, a perspective that i could understand i could relate to i could work with and the, my experience going through receiving peer support and receiving um, help from those that I could talk to and that, that understand specifically. I mean, you're talking to people that have done the work. Yeah. They've been in the seat. They've been on the job. They've been in the back of the ambulance. They've seen the things you've seen. Most of them have seen a lot worse. And I was able to be open and and to to speak to the issues and not be judged, not feel judged, feel like I was being heard, and that made all the difference. And then once the education aspect came in, and I started realizing, you know, that oh, this is you know just how our minds work. I was able to. It was the catalyst for me to make a whole host of other changes in my life. Mm. I mean, I was. You know, like I said before, I was going the wrong way. I was, you know, had bad habits going on and I was dealing with my issues with doubling down on those bad habits. And, you know, I just, uh, I realized that, you know, if I kept going down that road, it was, it was a dead end and I had to do something about it. And it, it, when I went through the peer support, just for dealing with my, my grief issues with my dad, it opened up so many other doors that had previously been slammed shut by me that allowed me to even just contemplate a change. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, slowly but surely, it took a little bit of time, but, you know, it was a catalyst for me to decide to do something about my health and go on this journey and, and, and do that. And then that was the catalyst for deciding to finally make a career change. I mean, there were a lot of reasons why. I felt trapped. These doors were just slammed shut. They were welded shut, you know, and I thought that I had, that was it. I have to just stay on this path. 
this is just the way it's going to be and I'm going to have to learn to live with it. And then I realized I don't have to do that, you know, so all these things happened as a result of, of me, you know, just saying, yeah, I need to talk to somebody. So they don't know it. Oh, I have told them, but they don't realize like that, you know, if I hadn't gone up there, I think things would have taken a much different path. So it's pretty crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing that story with, with us. And I'm so grateful for it, Sean, because that's the kind of thing that, like you say, you don't know you need it until you know you need it. And those doors you, you closed, but you all, it also means you have the power to open them. And um, I, I just, I really appreciate hearing your perspective on that. And, and you know, the funniest thing, and if, if you had us, if we had it, this would have been a much different conversation two and a half years ago, because I still wasn't there yet. And that was after I received, you know, a lot of help. I was feeling better about certain things, but I hadn't truly realized that. It it takes time and it takes, you know, you have to, you have to allow yourself to be open to yourself, I think, in a way that, you know, you can't, I don't know, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, I mean, you, you know, we're all really good at slamming doors, you know, we're all really good at saying, you know, but I mean, I think once people, I think being accountable to yourself, first and foremost, being accountable to yourself. It's a hard thing to do, but when you can get to that point, it, it just changes everything. And that's took me 40, 44 years to get there, but <laughs> I figured it out in some manner. I mean, I'm still, you know, like everybody else, we're all a work in progress, right? There's always yeah. improvements. We're always going to have, you know, self-doubt. We're always going to have regret we're always going to have all those things and that but it's okay you know that's a part of life and you know you just have to accept those things and still decide to you know try to move past them and you know hire (laughs) try to anyways you know yeah i hear you i hear you i'm still on that journey and (laughs) it's the old school red Sox fan in me i can't get you know it's like we used to say hope springs eternal and then we won a few world series. So now everybody's like, you know, okay. But I remember what it was like back in the eighties, nineties. It was pretty rough. You know, I just thought of something and I think like a lot of it too, I think um, this might be specifically a new England thing. So I, I hope I'm not, you know, limiting audience, but <laughs> it's hard to be an optimist and I, I find it hard to be an optimist anyways. I mean, we live in a, in a, you know, there's a lot that you can be cynical about. There's a lot you can be pessimistic about. There's a lot you can feel down about. Um, it's hard to be an optimist, especially when you're a New Englander, because I think we <laughs> tend to be a lot more realist in some aspects. And I'm definitely that person, but I've learned to be an optimistic cynic, I guess. So, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I don't know how it works, but, you know, you have to just, you have to try to continue to plug away. I think it's, you know, you just have to keep fighting, right? I mean, I get busy living or get busy dying is, you know, (laughs) another thing that pops up in my head a lot. So, I mean, it's like, you know, you just have to try, you have to try, you have to fight. Yeah. One last question for you. Um, Where do you 
speaking uh, speaking as an optimist to an optimist where what do you hope for the future in this work or where do you see the future of of your work or of law enforcement or mental uh, mental health and law enforcement i want to be okay so having said i'm an optimistic cynic <laughs> i'm also extremely cautiously optimistic <laughs> especially when it comes to government law enforcement everything anybody that has worked in any any government capacity whether it's you know i i know yeah. you've experienced this the 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 gears grind extremely slow so i mean to the point where i sat in a position for about 10 years that i no longer had faith was going to change yet somehow i still managed to just grind it out because i hoped beyond all hope that it would i see the i see the signals i will say being that on the from the inside out person i am concerned about some of the ways i think it has to be measured and thought out appropriately how we're going to react to changes in law enforcement how we're going to react to changes in society how we're going to react to um putting forward mental health i see i i so having said all that i'm extremely cautiously optimistic but i do see signals of things loosening up i mean when you have professional athletes on world stages now talking about their mental health as as in and normalizing it to the point where it's as easy to talk about as you know they pulled a hamstring and they need some time off there's still those that other side that doesn't want to relate or doesn't understand and you know there's a this backlash but i see those people as being fierce advocates because they're speaking up for what's important and and you see more and more of that every day i see it happen in the law enforcement community um, yeah. where you have a lot more police officers that are talking about mental health. That also brings an aspect to humanizing the badge, which is an extremely important thing, because yeah. I think there's a huge misconception on both sides that somehow law enforcement officers are, are wired differently than every other human walking the face of the earth. But I'm here to tell you guys, guess what? They're not. <laughs> They're just as failable as every single person walking the earth. You know, yeah. the only difference is, is they happen to be in uh, a situation where every action that they make can affect a person's life to a, to a very, very final degree, right? I guess th there are consequences to their actions that are above and beyond uh, a lot of other you know, yeah. chosen professions. I see signals that things are getting better, but the realist in me realizes we're still in the dark side of the moon right now we're not there yet we're not even close but you know there's more studies being done that stuff needs to continue because that it, we need to battle the stigma every day i mean it we need to wage war against it if you want to fight that's the fight there needs to be a paradigm shift in our our uh, societal structure for this to really take take hold and and rain you know gain the footing it needs and i would like to be more hopeful that that's going to happen i don't know when i mean i think politically speaking obviously we're in extremely tumultuous times 
even now, you know, in the current state we're in, I mean, I'm very unsettled as to whether we can really get that foothold we need to where we can advance this to a point mm -hmm. where our societal needs are being met. So it's, you know, it's an uphill battle. And, and, and I don't know where, I don't honestly don't know where it would be in five years. I don't know where it would be in 10. What I hope is that our, our efforts, I already know my, our efforts on a, you know, on a ground grassroots, our peer support unit level, we, we've had more success than failure in my opinion. And that makes me extremely happy. Yeah. I've seen the direct result personally speaking and, you know, uh, through others, I've seen the direct result of things we've been able to help facilitate and get people to the help they need. And so that is amazing to me because that didn't exist five years ago. Right. So it was just, hey, go to the bar and drink it off. And, you know, right. that was that was the adage, you know, so now that's changed. So I'm very, very pleased with that. I, I think that needs and, and I'm seeing an uptick in that industry wide, which is amazing. I think the the push for this civilianized career structure has also helped facilitate that because now we have people in positions of management that understand exactly how important it is and they're advocating now and we need more of that. We need our sworn uh, brothers and sisters to do the same and start advocating for us as well. So that's another part of it that that's an uphill fight it's it's changing. I see that changing too. You know, now there are many more voices on the sworn side that understand the importance of it for their civilian counterparts. So that is amazing. So I do see things improving, but I I, I think in general, again, there needs to just be a, an enormous paradigm shift in how we value our structure and of health in this country. I think it just needs to change. And I think, I I don't know where that's going. That yeah. scares me, I, 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 if I'm being honest, because I think we're split. I mean, I don't think, I know we're split right now. There's a lot of people that just look at the uh, the financial aspect of it and that's the be all end all. And that, that has to shift. It has yeah. to, it has to. It's important. If it doesn't, then I'm, I still have concern, but. Well, what I hear you saying is that, that the grassroots efforts, the people telling their stories and being accountable for the good, the bad, and the ugly, <laughs> and, and telling, that, telling that story, telling their journeys to, to other people and having that reverberate and work on a smaller scale, you know, getting away from this enormous governmental bureaucracy and having that really having people come together and work for change on a smaller grassroots, genuine, authentic storytelling basis is, is how change happens. And yeah, it's slow, but it's powerful. And I, I mean, I've met you a couple months ago when we were talking about this, but your story has stayed with me, Sean, and you've humanized for me and educated me on not only how it all works, the you know what 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 goes on behind the curtains, but also the the human side of a first responder in in the call center in a dispatch work. And 
I had never, you, you opened my eyes to that. I had never thought about that before. And I really, I really just am so touched by your story and by the fight that you're in and, and the way you do it so genuinely and so optimistically. And I, I really appreciate it. I think that, I think this is the way change happens. Yeah, I think you touched on an important point that uh, I'm really glad you actually brought up. And that's, I I 1000% agree with you that uh, the best model for achieving success is by this true peer, peer driven aspect of it. It has to, in the beginning of anything, you know, any sort of collaboration or any, I mean, trust is the key, you know, yeah. and you know, a lot of the issues that we, I, again, I, I tend to go wide and, on, you know, and these thoughts are abstract, but a lot of the issues I think we're experiencing as a society is because there's no trust in government on all sides of the aisle. Mm -hmm. And so everybody's coming from that different angle of, I don't trust anybody. And that's, we can't, we can't function that way. We can't. Is, is our system perfect? Absolutely not. Is our world perfect? No. Does everybody have, you know, great intentions for other humans? No, but we have to accept that and, and yet still be open to allowing yourself to, to accept that support from the people that are next to you in the trenches and the people that you're, you're with and the people that you care about. I mean, you have to, and it has to be that way. I, and I think that's the only way for it really to, I mean, I, you know, maybe there's other ways, but that's the one that got to me. And so it's the one that I'm saying, you know, well, I know this one works yeah. and I think it would work for everybody if you could just, you know, like give it a shot. But that trust is so important. And if you establish that in the beginning, I think it just opens up so many doors for people because they're like, okay, well, just like you said, you're gaining insight based off somebody else's experience that, that, that you trust. And what better way to start? What better stepping stone into that is there? I mean, maybe YouTube videos, but <laughs> you know, that's how I learn how to do anything else. But. Yeah, exactly. But but also, Sean, what you when you share when you specifically share your story, you're also building a bridge to somebody that's not in the trench with you. Mm -hmm. to somebody who's not in your circle uh, the, or the people around you. And that I think we, you know, I said it at the beginning, I, I fervently believe that there is more that ties us than that divides us. And we can stay focused on the things that we believe divide us, or we can share our stories and, and have those build bridges to each other. And those are the ties. And then you're, your trench gets bigger, the people around you get bigger, you know, the, the amount of people around you get bigger. And then we are all collectively working towards the same goal more often than not. So I, that's my eternal optimism, but I, I believe it to my core. I totally agree. And I, you know, that comes along with uh, accountability and self accountability too. Yeah. And I think that's another key piece. And I think that's another thing that's become lacking especially when it's when you're talking about you know bureaucracy to to speak to accountability I, that and what i said before i feel like that is there is a shift taking place where people are owning up and they're coming out and saying hey i did something wrong i'm sorry for it 
I'm seeking help. I have, you know, I have a problem or, or what have you. And, you know, when you see more and more of that, I think that's a positive sign. And I, I just think that's a step in the right direction. And I think that's a, a big part of it. People love to shove problems down because, you know, they don't want people to think that they're weak. And that's, that's what, you know, this is all, again, like where it all kind of relates to me. And, you know, I, we tend to do that because we want to put on a brave face and let people know we're strong. But I think you're stronger when you can admit that there's something that's bothering you or, you know, something happened and you want to make it better. You know, I think that's, that, that's the true strength is when you can say that. And, you know, I think that's why it's important also to talk about this stuff as much as you can. It's just, it's a benefit. It's a benefit. If there's one thing that somebody can take from what you said that they can relate to that helps them in their own fight, then why you're doing the work you should be doing, right? Then we're all, we're all doing peer support, right? Yeah. So I oh, amen to everything you just said. That is a hundred percent. Love it. Thank you so, so much, Sean. I, I know people will get a lot out of our conversation and by you showing up and telling your story, I can guarantee that you've helped somebody else on their journey. And I really, really appreciate everything you've said and your time here. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. And obviously just the fact that we were able to have this conversation, you're obviously doing the same thing. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. So. I'm glad we were able to to have it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. The word philanthropy is derived from the Greek word philos, which means loving, and anthropos, meaning human. So philanthropy is, at its core, loving humans. Love is the common thread running through all of my interviews this season. Every one of my guests loved the community they stood in enough to want more for it. They took steps, small at first, grounded in love and belief in their community, which yielded unexpected and beautiful outcomes for themselves and others. When looking at philanthropy through the lens of love, every action is an important action and everyone can lead from where they stand. What community do you love? You may already be a philanthropist. Do you give your time or share your talents or make connections or give that extra money because you love and believe in your community? That's the definition of philanthropy. So where do you see the opportunity to be more intentional, go one step further than you already do? If you need some direction, here are two organizations featured in this season that touched my heart deeply please consider donating to help their important and love-filled work continue. Old School Cafe at oldschoolcafe.com. That's O-L-D-S-K-O-O-L-C-A-F-E.com. And New England Blacks and Philanthropy at nebip.org. That's nebip.org. Thanks so much.